0: First of all, just before we open God's word together, I'd just like to say thank you. To be granted a sabbatical uh, by this church through its council has been a tremendous gift. Um, It's hard to describe just what a gift it is to have time, to meander, to walk, to think, to pray, to read, to be rejuvenated by God's creation. It was all of those things for me. I noted this morning as I was looking at Leviticus that in Israel, once every seven years, the entire land, all the people, because all were farmers, would need to take a year-long sabbatical. Wouldn't that be something to get back to? Can you imagine? A whole year of rest from work. In any event, it has been a time of refreshment and rejuvenation for me. I'm delighted to be back most of all to see everyone here again it's been such a long time so i'm grateful for that i i struggled with what to preach this morning because i unplugged for several months didn't speak with many people here with staff a couple of times with some of you a couple of times so i don't really have a pulse of what's going on in the church didn't know what to say my approach in these next couple weeks is going to be to listen. Listen to staff, listen to you, Um, and by the way, an invitation will come later to contact me. I'd love to visit as many people as possible, but my approach is to listen, and so I struggled with, what do I say this morning uh, coming back? And as I looked at the world, um, I don't know what your take on it is right now, but as I look, I see that there are a multiplicity of things that are dividing us right now and that are striving to divide divide Christ's church, let alone those in society. So I wanted to return to something that is utterly foundational, that breathes hope, that is the bedrock of the church of Jesus Christ. So I'm kind of pulling out of the vault a golden oldie, one that I preached at this church maybe eight or nine years ago, a version of that sermon, um, because it has spoken to me powerfully And I believe it does give us that kind of foundational point for launching once again uh, into a new ministry year, which is coming in a couple of weeks. So I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 54 through uh, through 62. Jesus has been arrested by the soldiers. Soon he will be crucified. He's warned Peter that Peter is going to deny him. And then we read these words in Luke 22, starting at verse 54. Beloved, listen to God's word. Then, seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. The servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, Yes, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he, wept out, he went outside and wept bitterly. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to each one of us as we need to be spoken to this morning. Allow these words to become material as they intersect with our bodies, they intersect with our own spirits, and translate into action in the world. Pour your grace out upon us this morning so that we may see and understand. And Lord, we may be moved by your great love. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've all experienced it. There are few things like it. It can fill us with conviction or festoon us with shame and grief. It might even make us cry. I remember when my grandfather used to give it to us. Heavy eyebrows furling down like many crumpled carpets, lines making creases on the side of his eyes. Receiving it was enough to assure us that we did not want to mess with him. I remember even better when my mother used to give it to us. Again, heavy eyebrows, furling, one lifted slightly higher than the other, and sparks. I'm sure I saw sparks coming from those eyes at times. We'd occasionally receive it at times just like this, in a place just like this, When we were sitting young and full of peppermints, buck teeth, and bony knees shifting from cheek to cheek on wooden pews, that I was convinced became stone as the preacher would go on and on. And when the long-awaited-for amen didn't come quickly enough, we'd get it. And we'd get it good. Yes, you know the it I'm talking about. The look. The formidable look. We've all received the look, haven't we? It's interesting to me that in our text for today, Luke makes special mention that Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. For some reason or another, unlike any of the other gospel writers, by the way, who mention nothing of Jesus turning and looking at Peter at the moment of his betrayal, for some reason or another, Luke wants us to focus on Jesus' look for a moment. I don't know about you, but I imagine this was the most piercing look in the history of the world. If ever there was a reason for Jesus to give one of his disciples the look, it was now. And if ever there was a reason for one of Jesus' disciples to weep and cry for having received the look, it was now. The stage had been set. Only a little while earlier, while eating the Last Supper with his disciples in the upper room, Jesus had warned Peter that Satan desired to sift him as wheat, to ruin his faith. Peter, in response, tried to live up to his name. He tried to be a rock and confess that while everyone else might be blown around like waves on the sea, he was going to be steady and strong. He was going to be resolutely, adamantinely dedicated to his Lord. This one who had taken him from casting his net in the sea for fish to an infinitely more meaningful life fishing for men. Lord, he said, I am ready to go to prison and to death for you. But Jesus knew Peter. He knew his heart and he knew his weaknesses. He also knew the future. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, three times you will deny me. We don't know what Peter may have said in response to the Lord's words. Luke does not spell it out for us. No, what Luke does instead is he allows Peter's actions to speak instead. When the soldiers come up the mountain to arrest Jesus, one of the disciples, we are told, one of the disciples pulls out his sword like John Wayne pulls out guns and starts swinging it around like a headhunter, lopping off one of the soldiers' ears. And who might this passionately protective and daring soul be? Luke leaves it to the delight of our imagination. But the author of the Gospel of John tells us it's Peter. When the soldiers get hold of Jesus and lead him off down the Mount of Olives, Luke suggests that all the disciples have run away and abandoned their lord except one. One brave disciple patters intrepidly behind. And who is this fearless friend? Again, it's Peter. Peter does not run. Peter does not hide. No, as Luke tells us right away at the beginning of our passage for today in verse 54, Peter was not about to abandon the Lord he loved. He was not about, in other words, to allow the Lord's prophetic word about him to come true. And so, as Luke puts it, he creeps behind the soldiers who are holding Jesus hostage. And he follows at a distance. He follows them right into the courtyard where he will be able to see Jesus and, think about it, more importantly, where Jesus will be able to see him. See his faithfulness. See the rock. But this is where the heat gets too hot for dear Peter. The rock begins to crumble and crack like clay in the desert sun. This is where Jesus' words to Peter and the other sleeping disciples on the Mount of Olives only moments earlier comes dreadfully true for Peter. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Peter's spirit wants to be near his Lord. And so he is near his Lord. Nearer though than his flesh can handle and his character can hold. For just as the Lord is undergoing an interrogation from the high priest, so now Peter will undergo an interrogation of his own. It's a struggle for Peter of titanic proportion and significance. If ever it was important for him not to fail, it is now. To betray a friend is bad enough. To betray a friend in their hour of gravest trial is as bad as it gets. Friends, Peter is about to lose all his illusions about his own strength and his own character and his own ability. And if we are willing to put ourselves in his shoes, we might be lucky enough to lose some of ours as well. Having situated himself by the fire in order to remain inconspicuous, unseen and unnoticed, it turns out that Peter has seated himself a little too close to the flames Enough light from the fire is thrown onto Peter's face for a servant girl to see the familiar shape of his jaw, the color of his hair, the darting movements of his swiftly shifting eyes. Quite convinced, she turns to the others sitting around the fire, points at Peter and says, this man was with him. We can imagine Peter's heart racing, his ears getting hot, his knees beginning to tremble and twitch, another flicker from the fire, and the first denying words, bursting up through his throat and out of his mouth like a great, big, unswallowable hiccup. Man, I am not. But this one denial won't do. Suspicions are aroused, and others begin frisking Peter with inspector's eyes. And after a while of awkwardness and furrowed eyebrows that speak silent condemnation, Peter is faced with a second challenge. Yes, you also are one of them. Peter hiccups again with, a lot more force and a little more exasperation. Man, I am not. I don't know about you, but I really wonder what Peter thought next as he sat there. His fear was getting the best of them, And Jesus' words were coming true. The text tells us that he sits there for a whole hour. Consider that, a whole hour. Probably one of the longest hours in his life before he is challenged a third time it must have been excruciating for him to sit there, don't you think? Wanting on the one hand to give in to the overwhelming urge to back up, give up, and abandon the Lord just like the others have. And on the other hand, wanting to remain sturdy and strong, wanting to be the rock, like the name Jesus gave him. To make right his previous two denials by simply admitting his relationship to Jesus and then taking whatever came, whether it meant arrest, degradation, or death. But when the third challenge does come, with heightened conviction and proof on the part of those looking at Peter, his accent gives him away. Certainly this fellow was with him, they say, for he is a Galilean. Peter then arrives at the lowest of low points in his life. He buckles and breaks. He bends like a toothpick between a farmer's frustrated teeth. His best efforts aren't good enough, and he commits High treason against the king of glory. The one whom he himself has declared is the Christ. The son of the living God. He denies knowing the one who knows him better than he knows himself. And loves him more than he ever thought love possible. The words must have poured forth like vomit to Peter's own heart. But he cannot stop himself. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And this is where the text gets piercing. We read these words. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Lyndon Baines Johnson, former president of the United States of America, is said by his biographer, Robert Carroll, to have been a consummate reader of men. Johnson would figure out what made people tick by watching them very closely so that he could manipulate them and foist himself up the political ladder. He was a consummate reader of men. When he would teach his underlings how to read other people, he would say something like this. Don't try to read their body language. Don't look at what literature they're reading. Certainly don't pay attention to what they're saying. But do this one thing. Look into their eyes. Read the eyes. For the eyes are the pathway to the soul. I'm curious. What if Lyndon Baines Johnson were there the day when Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter? What would Johnson have seen in those eyes? What would he have read? What did Peter see? Well, beloved, what if Peter didn't see what he and all of us would have expected him to see? What if he didn't get the look? What if he didn't see anger or malice or self-pitying grief or the astonishment that a friend could do such a thing? But what if he saw love? Yes, what if he saw love in Jesus' eyes? Love as steady as mountain and sturdy as rock. What if the only hint of grief he could detect in Peter was a perfect sorrow? And a sorrow not so much for himself, but for Peter. He who wanted so desperately to be faithful but could not find the strength in himself. And so not only failed his Lord, but failed himself. What if Peter saw that? What would that do to a guy? How would that feel? What would it mean? Well, that might just cut a betrayer's heart in two. That might, just might be the greatest and most painful look you could ever receive. That might just feel like life and death all wrapped up in one. A fatal blow and a bright new birth. Jesus' enormous generosity, exposing your own immense poverty. His strength to love and your cowardice. His light and no more doubt about your own darkness. The unlovable, swept up in perfection's love that just might be a brokenness that renews, repentance tears that heal, Good Friday and Easter in one glance. What would it look like that do to you? Dear friends, don't you think it's possible and altogether characteristic of our Lord that what cut Peter's heart in half, what made Peter's heart weep with a regret more sour than an ocean of spoiled wine and does the same thing to ours is that Jesus did not look at him and does not look at us as we would expect a friend betrayed would look. Isn't it altogether likely that what absolutely earthquaked Peter's heart and twisted Peter's stomach into a pretzel of sickness and regret Dramatic effect, thank you very much and is meant to do the same thing to ours, is that we, the one we have all deceived, are we okay? Okay. The one whose significance we have all withheld from our lips, no less than three times, even though we owe our very lives to this man. The great thing is that Jesus does not look at us with eyes torn, wide open by surprise nor with the glazed and benumbed look of a friend who lets you know that you've just snapped the last straw, nor with the red fireballs of a jilted lover who lets you know and screams at you, I told you so. I knew you'd do this. But who looks at us with the unspeakably soft, sanguine, half-moon eyes of one, hear this, of one whose greatest concern at the moment he is betrayed is to let the betrayer know that even now, He is fiercely loved, as ever. (laughs) Dear people of God, gathered here today, I bring the word to you this morning. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is that God, in the wideness of his mercy, has chosen to look upon us in love, even though the rooster crows for us all. The good news is that the creator of this universe, in the wonder of his grace, has chosen to look upon us with forgiveness, even though we have rebelled against him and spit in his face, even though we have failed to express sufficient gratitude for the sun that rises and falls upon our swollen heads day by day. The good news is that the only God is not like the capricious gods of the Greek pantheon who look upon people like us, who trip over our own feet, who find ourselves to be failures so often and then zap us with lightning bolts to satisfy their own disdain and self-pity. No, the good news is that the only true God in this creation is the long-suffering God whose heart breaks with ours, whose tears roll down with ours, and then who does what it takes to wipe those tears away. This is the good news, the greatest news. God looks at us from the cross that we put him on, but that he made a throne like he looked at Peter and says those impossible words that change everything. Father, forgive. They don't know what they do. This is the good news. And it changes everything. You know, some of us get mad at family or friends for telling us that we're fat or that we're greedy or that we're insensitive. Most of us would have cut Peter off completely. Who needs friends like that? But not Jesus. No, Jesus is the wisest man who ever lived and he knew that forgiveness was the only thing that would ever change the callous hearts of broken and rebellious people. The wisdom of the Gospel is that it is only by blessing those who curse you that people are changed. The cross of Christ has made a way for the God of this universe to bless those who have cursed Him. And this is the very wisdom of God, Paul says, foolish to the world, but it changes everything. Do you believe that it changes everything? Well, rest assured that it does. Forgiveness changes everything because the old sages were right. The best way to defeat an enemy is not to fight them and kill them, but to forgive them and make them your friend. Forgiveness changes everything because the ancient proverb is right. The noblest vengeance is to forgive. Forgiveness changes everything because Mark Twain was right. Forgiveness is the fragrance, the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. Forgiveness changes everything because, lastly, Martin Luther King Jr. was dead right. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. People of God, it is only the second chances that forgiveness offers that will change this world and bring peace. A peace that will last. On a New Year's Day, 1929 Georgia Tech played the University of California in the Rose Bowl, the biggest football game in college football. In the first half, a player by the name of Roy Regals recovered a fumble on behalf of the University of California, but much like I would do, became confused about direction and started running the wrong way toward the wrong end zone. He was tackled by one of his own players only yards before scoring for the opposing team. University of California tried to punt. It was blocked. Georgia Tech recovered the ball and scored a safety, which became the winning margin in this most important game. Halftime came. During halftime, the Cal players were sitting in the dressing room, all very quiet, eager to hear what the coach, Coach Price, might have to say. But Coach Price was uncharacteristically quiet. Roy Regles, for himself, the mighty failure, sat in the corner, feeling completely Rejected and ashamed of his stupid mistake, he put a towel around him, put his face in his hands, and silently cried. Nobody went over to him. Three minutes before the players were to go back onto the field, Coach Price stands up and he says, Men, the same team that started the first half starts the second. All the players stood up, walked out onto the field, except for Roy Ruggles, who just continued to sit in the corner where he was. Roy, Roy, Coach Price said, didn't you hear me? I said, it's time to get up and go on back. Coach he said, I couldn't go out there and face that crowd and face my fellow players to save my life. Coach walked a little closer to him and said, Roy, look at me. Roy tilted up his head and looked at his coach. Roy, get up and go on back. The game is only half over friends, if you know like I do that you've blown it at the game of life, that you're more inclined to fumble than make touchdowns, run in the wrong direction and play for the wrong team, you've come to the right place this morning. The church of Jesus Christ is not for self-assured superhumans who think they've got it all figured out and mastered. It's for those of us who know, as Brendan Manning once said, that more often than not, our cheese is sliding off our cracker It's for those of us whose hearts break because we know that we've slapped the God who loves us right in the face. We've besmirched His glory, begrimed His magnificent creation, and we've wounded the ones He loves. Each other. Ourselves. And supremely, His one and only Son. The church of Jesus Christ is for those who have wept and continue to weep with Peter in repentance, who receive again the reality of Christ's impossible words spoken to us from the cross day after day after day, and then who join Him in changing the world, becoming the fragrance the violet sheds on the heels that have crushed us. This is the hardest thing we will ever do. Forgiveness is the toughest test of love. But joining Christ in this is not optional. It is not optional. It's imperative. We who are given second chances are commanded to give second chances and third and fourth and fifth, 77 times seven. This is what it means to be his disciples and walk in his way. As William Temple once pointed out, quote, only one petition in the Lord's prayer has any condition attached to it. It is the petition to forgiveness. We must see what Jesus has done for us, and then become like him for others. When people look in your eyes, what do they see? What if next time they see love? What if next time they see Christ? Let's pray. Lord God, uh, C.S. Lewis once said that forgiveness is the most wonderful idea ever invented. And we in the church certainly love it. Until we actually have somebody to forgive. How true this is. Lord, and it's not only true on a personal level when we have been wounded by somebody, especially somebody who's close to us, there's no pain like it. But it's true in terms of the general movements and motions of our world. We're angry. And we have a right to be angry, Lord. But we pray that our anger would be righteous. And after this, that we would stand in the world as you do in a posture of premeditated forgiveness. So that your renewing power might break out. So that the Holy Spirit may transform hearts. We pray that you would... Lord, continue to help us to be a body of repentance and of forgiveness and of the extension of the forgiveness You have given us to the world who so desperately needs it. So many are living in shame because of whatever it might be in their own lives where either they have felt they have failed or others have told them they have failed and so they're walking around with an imposed sense of shame. But Lord, we ask that You would allow us to be your hands and feet, a presence of mercy, a presence of grace in the midst of your truth. Grant this to us now. Grant us the strength and the Holy Spirit power to do what on our own is impossible for us to do. Lord, our spirit is willing. Make also our flesh strong enough to do what we ought. In your name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.